standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 117 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am no longer on the property ladder. Yay! Who thought that would be something we were celebrating? I know, right? But I couldn't be more delighted. And on that note, I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've been to a cafe. What? I know. Back when I decided that we were going to introduce ourselves with facts, I imagined that that was the sort of fact that meant I was beyond desperate for some excitement. But guess what? In 2020, it means my life is thrilling and dangerous. You are just a thrill seeker. I am. Had a cup of tea in a cafe. Later on, Jenny Kleeman, journalist, documentary maker and author of Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, tells me about that book, which is a fascinating exploration of new innovations in sex, food, birth and death that will haunt your waking hours. As St Francis becomes one of the first films to open in cinemas in months, I talk to its writer and star Kelly O'Sullivan about why period stained is definitely the new black. (laughs) And we're back on an oil rig in Dunleavy Does Disaster as we watch Deepwater Horizon, which is a way better film than Armageddon, don't at me. So intense. (laughs) But first, so-called cancel culture, gaping holes and tiny pine martins. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're wishing things were merely as bad as Project Fear predicted. Oh, the the, the glorious heydays of <laughs> Project Fear. We will revisit Brexit at some point in the Bush Telegraph, but I, I can't I can't face it at the minute. I really can't. Well, I think the shit show is just about starting to ramp up again now, so maybe it's a job for next week, Hannah. Brace yourself. <laughs> Maybe it's a job for Naomi Smith. Maybe we can outsource it to her. That sounds like a plan I could agree with. Yes. Last week, MPs voted on the third reading of the domestic abuse bill. Let's start with the good news, as there have been some huge successes in this campaign so far. First up, MPs voted a new clause to end rough sex defences into the bill. A massive shout out to Fiona McKenzie and Louise Perry of We Can't Consent to This, Harriet Harman and many other campaigners for their tireless work on getting this through. And indeed, that includes Mark Garnier, who spoke again of Natalie Connolly, his constituent killed by a partner, and read from a letter from Alan Andrews, Natalie's father, who wrote, There is no way that a man should be able to bat away brutal sexual violence as just an accident and pave the way to get away with it. To cope with her private life being explored in intricate detail on top of the grief of losing her has been unimaginably hard for the whole family. Natalie is no longer here to tell us what he did to her or why he left her where he did. One thing is for certain, Natalie didn't fantasise about being killed or leaving her daughter without a mum that night. This isn't law yet, so the forwards push continues and Harriet Harman and the Centre for Women's Justice and We Can't Consent to This have also called on the CPS and police to review cases where rough sex claims have been used to drop rape and other assault charges. But let's get back to some good news. Secondly, children have now been included in the scope of the bill. I know, I know, it's mind-boggling that kids weren't already recognised as victims of domestic abuse and, until now, could only be considered witnesses. Also, non-physical behaviour such as coercive and controlling behaviour will be covered by the bill. These are all vital changes, but I'm going to hand over to Jess Phillips to explain what still needs to happen. She said, There are still gaping holes in the protection the law provides. Most importantly, the government is still refusing to include migrant victims with no recourse to public funds, leaving some of the most vulnerable with the choice between remaining with their abuser and destitution. 
Campaigners are working hard to ensure migrant victims aren't left out of the new bill, which, having passed through the Commons, is now being scrutinised by the House of Lords. That's a... No, I don't know what the word to use is because I want to say brilliant, but I also want to say terrible statement from her family. It's incredibly moving yeah. and so articulate. Yeah. So let's talk about Jodie Comer, actress and, until recently, subject of what I can only describe as over-enthusiastic fandom on Twitter. Last week, a fan, and <laughs> if you can't hear the air quotes, let me assure you they are there, did some rooting around online into the private life of the Killing Eve star, or stalking, as it is more commonly known. What they discovered, and again, hear those bunny ears, was that Coma has a boyfriend who may or may not be a man who was once a Trump supporter. Who cares, right? Mm -hmm. Wrong. Cue mass hysteria on Twitter and an outpouring of viciousness aimed at the actress. Several people pointed out wishing misery and ill health on her was perhaps jumping the gun, given there was no evidence at all that this was true. Grazia, for example, ran a piece headlined, Let's wait until we hear the facts before cancelling Jodie Comer. Ah. (laughs) And before you say, didn't write the headline though, this isn't about the piece. It's about the culture that permitted a headline, which essentially reads, come on guys, let's try the witch before we tweet that she's a disgusting piece of shit and then burn her. Oh God. Comer has not responded to the allegations. Probably too busy fucking a Nazi, right? But say it is true. Does that mean she shouldn't work again? No. Forgive me for thinking it might be an overreaction. If you've not found yourself looking at someone and thinking, I kind of hate you, but that's not going to stop me shagging you, you haven't lived. I kind of hate you, and that is absolutely what's going to get me shagging you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And just FYI, any young woman who believes that a right-wing boyfriend would have the power to change a woman's mind, but not the other way round, should definitely remove the word feminist from her Twitter biog. Yep. But why does any of this matter? Well, because it happened. And why it happened perhaps goes to the root of what's driving so-called cancel culture in this country, whatever you believe that to mean. It's because we allow women to be talked to and about like shit online. And while none of what I'm about to say should be controversial, the febrile climate we now live in means it undoubtedly is. It is not okay to send abuse or death threats to women you disagree with, regardless of who they are. Mm -hmm. If you jumped with undisguised glee on the Amber Turd story and pretended it was all totally hilarious, and I'm looking at you, blue tick feminist men, You made it okay for anyone to say whatever they like about her, and sadly, to other women. If you're disappointed in J.K. Rowling's views on transgender rights versus women's rights, fine. But if you send her a death threat or call her an ugly old cunt, you are contributing to a culture where the end result is Jodie Comer is cancelled, or whatever you want to call it, on the basis of a rumour. And if the rest of us let the rise of online misogyny pass without comment, we're contributing to it. And so, it's official. I'm saying it needs to stop. Hear, hear. That Amber Heard stuff drove me mad because everyone was laughing like that joke was the funniest joke that they'd ever heard. Amber Heard. Now, there's a funnier joke there that I, in 30 seconds, thought, well, I couldn't call her Amber Heard because that's already my nickname for Donald Trump. (laughs) Boom. Funnier joke than that joke. It's just an excuse to pile onto women. 
Yep, agreed. Give me some good news. Give me some good news. Let's just cleanse with a couple of good news stories that will particularly resonate if you are a bison or a pine martin. I love a bison. Big up to our cloven-hooved and mustelid listeners, <laughs> of which there are many. Well, there's Jen. Hi, Jen. <laughs> she's, she's not actually a mustelid because she likes them. <laughs> oh, I thought that was maybe you were call, calling out to the mustelid community, but you are actually full on calling out to the mustelids. Okay. Kent is looking forward to hosting the first wild bison in the UK for 6,000 years. Thanks to a million pound project to reintroduce the animals, one male and three females, to the area in spring 2022. Not only will this help secure the future of an endangered species, but they will also naturally regenerate a former pinewood plantation by killing off trees, creating a healthy mix of woodland, scrub and glades, which in turn will allow insect, bird and plant life to thrive. Go Bisons! It's a circle of life. I have a question though. Okay. That, that group of bison are just going to inbreed and then die out, aren't they? I, I think that's why there's three females. Apparently, I read this once in, once in National Geographic, you need at least a hundred of something to secure its future because that is how many you need not to cause inevitable inbreeding down the line maybe kent just wants like a royal family of bison yeah maybe Habsburg bison <laughs> Habsburg bison meanwhile the first pine martins to be reintroduced to england have had kits which is cracking news for the conservationist efforts to boost their recovery extensive hunting and the loss of their woodland homes over the past couple of centuries means that the species had all but vanished from england so 18 animals were translocated from scotland to gloucestershire in september 2019 and even though pine martins don't necessarily go at it every year tracking and cameras have revealed that at least three females have given birth well done those pine martins Although also, I feel the need as feminists to support the ones that have chosen not to. Absolutely. They've got our support too. <laughs> and I hope they're having a lovely time scampering through the forest, doing whatever the fuck they like. Have I got more animal-related good news? Mm. To bear shit in the woods? Yes, they do. <laughs> a court in America has put grizzly bears back on the Endangered Species Act after hunts were planned in Idaho and Wyoming in parts of what is known as the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. That's right. These fuckers were planning to shoot Yogi and Boo Boo. No way, bastards. Conservationists and indigenous tribes called the decision a tremendous victory after the judge said that the original decision in 2017 to delist the grizzly bear had been, and I quote, the result of political pressure by the states rather than having been based on the best scientific and commercial data. That doesn't sound like something people would do. Put money before science, it will never catch on. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where fun film roles for older women, hooray, get handed to men, for fuck's sake. According to Deadline, tagline breaking Hollywood news since 2006, Rafe Fiennes is attached to star as Miss Trunchbull in Netflix and working titles movie adaptation of Tim Minchin and Dennis Kelly's 2010 show Matilda the Musical, itself an adaptation of Roald Dahl's 1988 children's novel. Now then, Pam Ferris played the villainous, child-hurling headmistress in the original film of Matilda back in 1996 and was pretty much perfect, despite being a woman. Incredible scenes. <laughs> When casting began for Matilda the Musical, director Matthew Walker told the New York Times that he wanted a psychological actor. 
Casting was open to both women and men. Bertie Carvel bagged the part, and from Carvel on, only male actors have played Miss Trunchbull on stage. The casting of a bloke as Miss Trunchbull actually amplifies what's already eye-roll-worthy gender role conformity at play in Matilda. Child lobbing aside, Trunchbull gets punished for not being stereotypically feminine enough. She wears breeches, not skirts, flats, not heels. She has thick arms, powerful legs, and is sports-mad and sadistic. Come on now, women. That's no way to look or behave, am I right? Add to that Trunchbull's teacher foil, Miss Honey. Demure, motherly, gentle, slender, beautiful, quote, like a porcelain figure and a damsel in distress. Oh, that's better, isn't it, ladies? The shoot date has yet to be set for the new Matilda, so there is still time for the producers to show the stereotypes the door and cast a woman as Trunchbull. You won't see me at Ladbrokes for this one, though. It's interesting that stuff about Julia Sawala. Oh, with Chicken this Run too, as well. Yeah, she's too old yeah. to voice a chicken, despite the fact she sounds exactly the same. But more's the point, despite the fact that we don't know that chickens' voices don't change when they get older. <laughs> um, indeed. <laughs> you don't even know what noise a chicken makes. Did you just? Oh, they did at like me? a lamb noise. <laughs> <laughs> I am joined on the phone by Jenny Kleeman, journalist, documentary maker and author of Sex Robots and Vegan Meat, a fascinating book that will uh, give you nightmares. Jenny, hello and thank you for the sleepless (laughs) nights. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Sorry about those sleepless nights. (laughs) I mean, I can only imagine how many sleepless nights you've had actually speaking to these people, but more on that later. The subtitle for Sex Robots and Vegan Meat is Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex and Death. And boy, do those frontiers read like science fiction. Can you tell us a bit more about how the book came about and the astonishing cutting-edge innovations that you've uncovered? So the book is divided into four sections, and it's about four inventions. Each one promises to redefine a kind of fundamental pillar of human existence, birth, food, sex and death. So sex is sex robots. What if you could have a partner designed to meet your every need? Food is about lab-grown meat. What if you could eat meat without any animal having to die? Birth is about ectogenesis, biobags, babies being incubated outside of the human body. What if you could have a baby without anyone being pregnant? And death is about euthanasia machines. What if you could have the perfect painless death at a time of your choosing? I kind of got the idea for this because the first thing that I started looking into was sex robots. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as a journalist, quite often... The best way to find stories is to see them being done in a way that you never would have done them and think, oh, they've completely missed the point. I saw a very, very small story on the BBC News website about this new campaign against sex robots, this feminist campaign against sex robots. And I thought, what is this? Surely the story is that sex robots exist and then you talk about the campaign. So I started investigating it. I spent a very, very long time trying to convince people who are making these things to let me in their factories. And when I got the access, that's how I began doing it. But then, yeah, I, I wanted to do a, a kind of broader thing about how the fundamental elements of human existence, how we're born, how we live and how we die, have always kind of been beyond our control until now. But there are now new technologies coming together that promise us the perfect food, the perfect sex, the perfect birth, the perfect death. And what will happen if we kind of use technology to control our lives in that way, what will be the unexpected consequences of that? As you said, the book's divided into four sections, sex, food, birth and death. When I'm reading the book for an interview, I tend to take notes on my phone. 
And at one point, I've noted, all in capital letters, I can't decide which section terrifies me the most. Uh, <laughs> did what you were uncovering frighten you? Yes. Not the bit that you might imagine, actually. For me, the most frightening thing was the birth section. Mm. And it was the kind of implications of artificial wombs, which are going to bring total equality in reproduction between men and women. So if women don't have to be pregnant for there to be babies, then men and women just provide the cells you need to get started and you can grow a baby and everyone can carry on with their business whilst the baby's growing and then the baby's born. And there are many positive reasons why you'd want to do this. But when I kind of was uncovering what the implications might be for women when we're no longer the baby carriers, that really, really terrified me. I couldn't agree more. I think the section for me on death is the least frightening. And the, <laughs> the sex and birth were the ones which really put the fear of God that I don't believe in <laughs> up me. But <laughs> neither of those have technology that bodes well for women. In fact, designed by men, but overwhelmingly impacting women, not in a positive way, is definitely a recurring outcome in these innovations you were looking at. Yes, all of them. And that's the crazy thing was I didn't, I didn't think I was going to write a kind of feminist book mm. uh, and uh, wasn't kind of looking for, I mean, obviously, if you're doing something about sex robots and artificial wombs, you're going to look at, you know, the impact they have on women. But then I found that even in the food section about lab-grown meat and even in the death section, these were innovations that are going to disproportionately affect women. In any country where assisted suicide is legal, Women choose it more than men do, even though suicide is much more of a male phenomenon. So these kinds of technologies are much more likely to affect women. And the overconsumption of meat, which is causing the problem that lab-grown meat is supposed to solve, is quite a male thing. Men eat a lot more meats than women do, and, mm -hmm. and the problems caused by industrial agriculture come from the male appetite for meat. So I found myself in the end writing a, writing a book about what happens when men with giant egos <laughs> try and leave a legacy, try and get famous by being the next Steve Jobs or something and inadvertently cause lots of problems that are going to affect women a lot more than men. In pretty much all of the sections, you are a booger because I'm like, oh, yeah, this sounds fine. <laughs> this what? But with the, the clean, <laughs> clean meat in inverted commas, I was like, well, how can this be bad? Oh, they use FBS, fetal bovine serum? <laughs> FBS, fetal bovine serum, yes. Although, although they're trying to get away from it, but yes, this meat, which is... So the, the, the vegan meat in the title comes from the idea that this lab-grown meat industry, the clean meat industry, is run by vegans and funded by vegan billionaires. And they all keep it pretty quiet that they're vegan. But it comes from this tacit understanding that the animal rights argument in veganism has failed to convince people. And if we can tell people that meat is bad for you and bad for the planet, people are much more likely to switch and become vegan than if you show them, you know, horrible videos taken in abattoirs. And yeah, it's meant to be the most ethical way of eating meat. It's, you know, promoted by vegans and created by vegans. And then you realise actually the medium, that, which is the kind of fluid that the cells taken from animals is grown in to make them kind of multiply and proliferate. Traditionally, this stuff, this liquid is like, the least vegan substance on earth uh -huh. because it is it's fetal bovine serum that comes from the beating hearts of embryos of calves whose mothers are dying in the abattoir they plunge a needle into their beating hearts and withdraw this serum which they then um, grow cells in 
And, and whilst these companies have found alternatives to serum, to, to this particular kind of fecal bovine serum, um, nothing's really quite as good. So the entire industry is, has been dependent on and has been developed through possibly the most disgusting, cruel substance you can ever think of. And also, I've got to ask you, have you managed to get the taste of that lab-grown chicken nugget out of your mouth yet? (laughs) (laughs) It was a really disgusting thing, because it wasn't the taste that was the problem, because it tasted like chicken. It was, the texture was just completely wrong, because at the moment, you know, you imagine growing meat in a lab, and you imagine, I don't know, a piece of meat, a piece of steak, a piece of chicken, and they're not growing tissues, they are like cloning cells, cultivating cells. So I ate this priceless chicken nugget with all these PR people staring at me and smiling, <laughs> saying, doesn't it taste like chicken? It's like, yes, it tastes like chicken, but it has the texture of the most low-grade processed food. It was like mushy mash. It was completely disgusting. And genuinely, I couldn't eat meat for a very long time after I ate that chicken nugget because it might, it's the sort of thing where, especially with meat, if it doesn't feel right in your mouth, you have this kind of evolutionary response where your brain says, spit that out that is bad it's going to make you sick uh, i didn't spit it out in the name of journalism i ate it all and, <laughs> and had no further problems but yeah i have i've only just managed to to wash the, the taste of that away so you interviewed a sex robot you ate a priceless lab-grown chicken nugget you watched fetuses growing in plastic bags and you attended members only meetings where people learn how to kill themselves with suicide kits yeah so it's a big question but what surprised you the most during your investigations Gosh, I was surprised all the time. Gosh, where to begin with things that surprised me? I was surprised to discover that the man who runs the premier sex doll factory in the world had sculpted one of the very few male (laughs) sex robots that he makes to look exactly like him. And when I asked him, you know, there's a sex doll that looks just like you. And he said, oh, it doesn't look it doesn't look like me. And I said, "It, it really looks a lot like you. And I said, you know, are you happy that people are going to buy something and have sex with it and it has your face? And he was really quite annoyed at being asked about that. But that surprised me that anyone would want to do that. There were all, you know, there were surprises at every single turn. And I never got what I was, what I thought I was going to get, which is why writing this book was such a joy, because it was a genuine journey of discovery, a genuine adventure. And it's an adventure to read. It really is, because as much as it absolutely scared the shit out of me, I was, <laughs> just could not stop turning those pages. And I don't think my eyes have oh, ever been you. that wide open because it's <laughs> it's funny. It's funny if they weren't trying to make it true. There's an absurdity about all mm. of it that comes from just very simple, basic questions like, you know, shouldn't we all just be eating less meat? Or are you really married to your sex doll? Or all of that stuff. <laughs> And it was nice because I have quite a twisted sense of humour uh, and it was nice to actually to actually be able to share it with other people. Um, <laughs> and I'm glad, I'm glad you found it funny because I wasn't sure if anyone would. <laughs> There's a real Jurassic Park feel though, isn't there? It's, it's, you know, it's Jeff Goldblum. Yes. It's like, you know, we can do this, but have you stopped to think whether we should? Absolutely. And I haven't thought about that, but it's, it's a lot like Jurassic Park. And this is the way that we look at technology as this fantastic, shiny new thing that's mm. going to do something great. And you know nobody really wants to ask the questions of what else is it going to do and uh, do we actually want this it's exactly like that and it you know we we look at technology in this way that it's it's so exciting and beguiling and i think that's because we're used to science fiction movies it's either exciting and beguiling or it's the terminator there's nothing in between which is this kind of what are the slow worrying ways that it could change us 
And for me, the big thing has been the iPhone. The iPhone was launched in 2007. When it was launched, even Steve Jobs had no idea how successful it would be. And the extent to which we are all dependent on our smartphones and that if your phone is, I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, you know, if my phone is being repaired or, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, there's something in the back of my head always say, oh, where's my phone? Where's my phone? It, it is the external organ that you can't live without. Mm. And nobody could have ever, ever predicted that. And if, if a phone can change the way human beings interact so much, then... God knows what will happen when we use technology to change the fundamental elements that make us who we are. So obviously that took five years of your life for you to write Sex Robots and Vegan Meat. What are you working on now? Good question. Well, I've always got my fingers in lots of pies like any freelance journalist. I am actually presenting the Brexit show on the new Times radio station on Friday, Saturdays and Sundays. That's exciting. So that keeps me busy. It is exciting. It's from 6 till 10 a.m. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we, we did it last week and I didn't die with all those ridiculous hours. So um, <laughs> so that's that's good. But I'm working on lots of weird and wonderful stories, trying to work out what my next move will be. I mean, it's been such a joy to hear that that people have enjoyed this book um, because I actually you know everyone talks about how happy they are to finish their first draft I was sad when I put the last full stop on I was sad because it was just such a pleasure to write and so uh, hopefully I'll get to do more in, in, in a similar vein I just need to find out which things to look into next well I would happily let you scare the living daylights out of me about the future at any time oh well Mickey it would be my pleasure (laughs) And it's worth noting that actually when we're talking, happy publication day. Thank you. It's a really, really exciting time for me. It's been a a long, long time. Especially if you're a journalist and you're used to like writing stuff or making a documentary and then it going out. It takes a very long time for a book to come out, but it's worth it. It's an amazing thing to hold your first book in your hands. So thank you. Congratulations. And where can people find out more about you, please? Uh, Well, I've got a website, jennycleman.com, which has bits of pieces of my writing and clips of documentaries that I've made and I'm on Twitter at Jenny Kleeman contact me there and uh, yeah I would love to hear from people particularly people who've, who've, who've read the book would love to hear your thoughts Jenny thank you so much for talking to me thank you so much for having me it's been wonderful and you can hear my full chat with Jenny as this week's Sunday Chops it is a cracking listen even if I do say so myself We talk more about the impact these innovations, particularly the baby bio bags, will have on women, how far along the production line the inventions currently are, and what use might have been made of the Terminator if you search deep enough on the dark web. Hit subscribe and it'll be waiting for you come Sunday morning. Maybe don't listen to the vegan meat bit when you're eating your breakfast. Sex Robots and Vegan Meat is available from all good bookshops now. Hello there, listener. Jen here to ask you a little favour, if I may. If you're not doing so already, you can follow us on all of the social medias. Well, not all of them because we're old and we don't know what all of them do. But on Twitter, we are at Standard Issue UK. On Facebook, we are Standard Issue Magazine. And on Instagram, where it would be particularly helpful if you would follow us, we are at Standard Issue Podcast. Also on Twitter, you will find me at Inspiragen, Mickey at Mixter Noonan and Hannah at That Dunleavy. Ah, go on, give us a follow. (laughs) 
Hi, Hannah here. I am joined on the phone by Kelly O'Sullivan, screenwriter and star of St. Francis, which is coming to a socially distant cinema later this month. Thanks for joining us, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. How's your 2020 been so far? Oh, you know, just sunshine and rainbows, everything exactly (laughs) like I expected. Yeah, I mean, it's wild. It's been the wildest ride of any year that I've experienced. How about yours? Yeah, pretty much I would say the same. I live by myself. So I had a lesson in whether or not I could actually live with myself, adjust myself for three months. And yeah, lots of you time. Yeah. And I had a bit of an existential crisis in the middle. But actually, I think I feel quite happy with my life having had a chance to have a look at it on the upside that's amazing I hope as many people can say the same thing I feel like that's a wonderful revelation to have I mean I did just stay in the same pair of pajamas for about a fortnight somewhere in the middle when I just moped around the house oh same yeah I haven't worn actual jeans or like constructed fabric in four months just everything is stretchy everything could be pajamas and and yeah I feel okay about that I went out in jeans the other day. It was horrible. Why do we do that to ourselves? We don't have to. I feel like now we're realizing that jeans don't have to be a part of life anymore. Absolutely. The first thing to say to you is St. Francis is absolutely excellent. I really loved it. Indie black comedy is my genre of choice, I have to say. And although I'm not the sort of person that needs to see myself in art... I have to say it's absolutely delightful when I do and I did in this and I would imagine a lot of other women will too. Oh good yeah I hope so. Rather than me explain to people and risk spoilers could you give us just a a little pricey of what the plot is and what you're happy for us to discuss? Totally so Bridget is 34 and she's a waitress and she's kind of floundering in life and she gets a job as a nanny in an affluent suburb of Chicago at the same time that she's discovers that she's pregnant and so she gets an abortion and the movie is about the interplay between getting that abortion having that experience and then being a sort of stand-in parent for her daytime job yeah I don't know if you've seen Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You you are the fourth person who has brought that up to me and it is on my it's like the next thing I'm gonna watch because I've heard it's just brilliant well I think you're gonna love it because I think the two of them are swimming in the same water and when I say that I mean the same water that's bloody with period uh, to (laughs) to be honest because you are doing something which is going some way to removing the stigma that women have around their bodily functions particularly women that it's a shameful Mm -hmm. thing Was that something you set out to do? Oh, absolutely. We wanted to be completely realistic in our portrayal of this woman's body. And that included period blood and it included post-abortion bleeding. And so knowing that we wanted to be authentic, we said, okay, it's going to be graphic in its nature because it's graphic in the experience of it. And we didn't want to shy away from that because shying away from it, again, would continue that stigma that women have been made to feel, you know, ashamed of this innate part of our lives for so long absolutely I always go to super bad the film in which a girl gets period blood on somebody and it's a joke and it's disgusting and it's treated as this awful horrible thing I remember seeing that when I was young and I think it's just what a shame that so many young women saw that yeah and then learn you know internalize that messaging of oh gross this is something that I should hide this is something that will be 
disgusting to the world and to men. To be honest, I get it because the scene in which there's an incident with the toilet, that has happened, I think, to almost every woman on earth where they've just thought, oh my God, what am I going to do here? And yeah. Bridget is embarrassed about it. And I would yeah. be embarrassed about it, I have to say. And it reminded me of, of a story that went viral here about a woman who'd gone on a Tinder date and she'd gone back to the guy's house, needed a poo, had a poo. It wouldn't flush in the toilet. She'd had a panic. She'd thrown it out of the window, <laughs> except the window wasn't actually a window. It, it was two panes of glass and it had fallen, no. it had fallen between the two panes of glass and then she'd attempted to get it out and she'd become wedged and the fire brigade had to come oh and deal with God. it. And I just looked at that and I thought that would be me. I'd like to think that I'm a grown up and a responsible person and that I don't care about stuff, but I don't know what I would have done. Oh, same. I probably would have waited to just die stuck in the window rather than anyone. I probably out. would have left the house and just never, ever <laughs> called that person again. They just apparently... disappeared in a dust cloud. <laughs> they apparently went on another date afterwards, which I think is remarkable. But um, yeah, I cause... love that. I think there should be more of that, more accepting of people's, you know, foibles and these awkward circumstances that we find each other in because everybody has moments like that absolutely I think it's part of being a messy human being which we all are I wanted also to talk to you about abortion because obviously abortion in America and abortion here are tinged slightly different in the conversation and we've I've been quite horrified to see how backwards you have gone oh. as a country in fact I was in America two years ago and every day I got up and turned on the news there was a different state had announced they were changing the rules. And I actually said, this must have been what it was like in secession, that every day yeah. you woke up and the, the rules had changed again. Yeah, like, and what new hell are we in? That's the way it feels every day here with this administration. It's just how how far can we sink down into this hellhole? And yeah, when the movie was just being shown at festivals, that's when all of those abortion bans were, people were trying to implement them in states and it just felt like truly bizarre timing. We went to Ireland and made a documentary about the Repeal the Eighth campaign, which was successful, so women in Ireland can now have an abortion. Mm -hmm. We were talking to an author over there, and she said the problem with abortion in fiction is woman gets pregnant, has abortion, goes on with life, isn't necessarily dramatically compelling. But I think you've actually proved that statement wrong because I think Bridget's story is compelling. Yeah, yeah, that was the goal. The source of the drama in this film doesn't have to be the abortion, that there can be other sources of drama yeah. in the film. And the abortion can be one thing that a person goes through, but it doesn't have to be the climax of their life. And it doesn't have to be the defining event of a protagonist. I think that's the danger is we think, oh, and now this is a person who has gotten an abortion. Yeah. And it feels very like dramatic and, and your life is completely changed. And now you're one of, you know, I say this in quotes, like you're one of those people and, and it defines you. And, and this movie was all about saying like, no, abortion is normal. It should be treated as one plot point that can have you know complicating effects but it doesn't have to be the centerpiece yeah I also thought it was very interesting view of how childless or a very accurate view on how childless women are viewed by the outside world and how much pressure there is I mean I was actually curious about the, the picking of the name Bridget because I was quite delighted that after the other fictional 
spinster Bridget Bridget Jones did so much damage I think to the view of single oh, women yeah. I feel like your Bridget has done something to to correct that you know it's so funny I never even thought of that I never thought of Bridget Jones Bridget is my confirmation name oh really yeah my confirmation name is Francis oh I love that yeah I love that so much. But but now that you bring it up, I think that's an inc- I wish I could claim that it came from that, that it's a reaction to that yeah. that Bridget Jones and this is a much more modern, progressive view of women without children. Yeah. The thing that really, really rang true for me in the film is the conversation that Bridget has with her mum. Because I sometimes think the people closest to us are actually the worst when it comes to yeah. uh, making judgments. And her mum says something to her that's so flippant and passes so quickly that Bridget doesn't even respond to it. And yet what her mum has actually said, if you break it down to what she says, has said is so hurtful. She says, I actually wrote it down, it'd be nice to have a reason to visit. (laughs) It's so true. Because people think by using a euphemism of not saying, oh, I'd like you to have a baby, they're being less hurtful. But in many ways, they're saying you on your own are not enough. That's right. They're saying, get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> Give me the grandchild that I'm owed. Yeah, absolutely. And that I so desperately want, which I actually, I can really respect the feeling of, of really, really wanting grandchildren. But, but yeah, it's not up to them. No, absolutely it's not. not. The of the world. Now, talking of children, Ramona Edith Williams, what a find. How hard was she to find? How hard is it to find child actors that are genuinely that good? We got so lucky. We worked with this amazing casting company called PR Casting in Chicago. And they brought in, I want to say about 30 girls. And she was the youngest girl that we saw. She was five years old and just like so small. And traditional wisdom is that you want to cast older than the part because they're more mature. They can handle longer hours. But when we met her, she was so uncoached and just completely natural that we said, okay, that has to be Francis because everybody else had just a little bit more either sarcasm which comes surprisingly early at ages six through eight, or they had been trained to be a version of a child, like to be a Disney Channel version. And she was just herself. And she's so smart and um, funny and playful that we knew that she was the one. Yeah, because she has to do a lot, doesn't she? And in in the early scenes where she just utterly destroys Bridget, really, Every time she, well, not destroys her, but I've been around children who've said things to me that I've thought I'm going to go home and start crying. Because For sure. That's so, that's so on the nose that no adult would ever say it. But also she's very, very good at, at the other stuff, at the light stuff, at the comedy stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. I think she, she's the best actor I've ever worked with. The most present, the most in the scene. So, you know, if she wants to be an actor, she can do that. She, I think she actually wants to be an ice skater in real life. She like wants to grow up to be... A professional ice skater. Uh, well, she, if she's as good as that as she is at, at in St. Francis, we'll be watching out for her at the Olympics. This film came together very quickly, didn't it? You wrote this and it was almost filming immediately. That's not generally how incredible. it works, isn't it? No, not at all. And I think it's because we were so scrappy and small that we were able to do that. I started writing in January of 2018 and we were filming in July. And that is almost unheard of. But I think... When it came down to, okay, we either do it this year or we wait a year, both Alex, who directed the film, and I were like, we don't know what next year is going to look like with independent film and financing and people's schedules. If everyone can do it now, let's just do it. And so he was able to put together this incredible team of producers and he found the financing. So 
we got lucky in that we were able to work in, you know, without that many resources because more resources take longer. Am I right in saying this is the first thing you'd ever finished as well? <laughs> That's the first full script you'd ever written. That game is That's amazing. Correct. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Now I'm trying to write more and I'm like, oh, it's right. It is hard to finish things, <laughs> to finish things, to stick with the project. But, um, but yeah, I'm just happy that I had the motivation. It was the first story that I ever felt compelled to finish. Something about every other project I was able to abandon, but this one, and I think because of it, you know, the way representation of abortion in TV and film is, I felt like this might actually add to the conversation. Yeah. And it's important to me that that people see a different depiction of this. I think I believed in something for the first time. If you're still writing now, how have you found writing in lockdown? It's very strange. At first, I couldn't write at all because I felt like I was just on high alert of what is happening. I felt so bombarded by the news and my own anxieties that I found it really difficult. And then I found sort of a sweet spot in the middle where I was able to complete a screenplay um, that now we're starting to try to get resources for again. And now I'm back in writer's block with a, a third, which is hopefully going to be my third screenplay that I'm writing. But you know, it's it's a bizarre time because I feel like I'm questioning what are stories that are worth being told right now. It is difficult um, to know, isn't it, what the world is going yeah. to look like. I mean, every time I watch something, you know, just something that's on the telly, something that was obviously filmed in the past, and the past seems quite a long way away now, even though we're only talking about a few months ago. She's like, oh, those yeah. people are standing really close together. They're really freaking out. Look, look, they're still shaking hands in that universe. It's really weird to watch. That's right. Every crowd scene, you're like, what are they doing? Step away from each other. I feel the same way. It's a bizarre thing. And But you also hope like there can be stories where it's not everybody standing six feet apart that people still can be standing close to each other but who knows I mean I've sort of learned during this time that trying to plan for what the future is going to look like for movies is pointless you're in a great position where you've got something else to do how do things look from an acting point of view over there how does it look with theaters oh bad it's really yeah. bad they just announced that Broadway is closed down until the first of the year oh really um, mm-hmm so it's sad. it's a I know it's a devastating time to be particularly a theater actor because suddenly the industry just evaporated and, and who knows when it's going to come back and in what capacity. It seems like maybe there's a path forward with TV and film because you can be a little more deliberate about how many people are on set. But in terms of live performance, it's devastating. Talking to my fellow actors who you know don't have another profession, who aren't writers, I think there's a, a tremendous sense of loss. And what's the situation with cinemas where you are? Are cinemas opening? Summer, yeah, summer open, I believe. I can't really imagine going to one right now. I can't imagine going to And the US is doing a terrible job. There's no sign of us getting this under control. You know, yesterday was the highest spike in corona cases yet in the US. Yeah. And since we have no stable leadership, I think all of these states that are reopening, it's just going to be a matter before they have to close again. We're the same here. And literally England, Scotland's got it under control. Ireland's got it under control. It's just us that are really, really failing. 
but our cinemas oh. are opening. But how do you feel about that, I suppose? Having your first film out at a time where most people might not see it in the cinema, does that does that make the experience different? I'm trying to just appreciate that we had, you know, we had a beautiful festival run of about a year where we got to travel all over the world and that was really lovely. And then we had two beautiful weekends. We opened theatrically in New York at the end of February and in LA we had one weekend and then everything shut down. And so I'm trying to just be grateful that it got any sort of theatrical audience at all before the fear of the pandemic was there. And then honestly, I feel very conflicted about, you know, telling people to go see this movie in theaters. Yeah, Who knows what it'll... It is, yeah, because mostly I want people to be safe and to mitigate any sort of risk. But I don't know if there's a way to do it safely if the theaters aren't packed. I have a feeling the theaters won't be like <laughs> packed for this small yeah. independent movie. But who knows? Yeah, mostly I just want people to be safe about it. Yeah. And there will be other ways for people to see it, which is which is definitely the upside. Having okay. had such a phenomenal response to your first film, does that really put the pressure on the, the difficult second album, as it were? Yeah, I'm like completely in fear of the sophomore slump. But I'm also, I think the more that I can accept that and say, you know, even geniuses, you know, Martin Scorsese and all of their films aren't, amazing yeah but they kept making them and so rather than being sort of immobilized by that pressure i'm trying to just say well okay if the next one if next one doesn't resonate in the same way then that's okay the thing i'm mostly worried about is you know i'm writing up in this movie i was writing about some taboo issues but what happens when i'm not writing about those things like when i'm not writing about I don't know, things that I didn't see as like hot button issues, but like this next thing I wrote is just about like a friendship <laughs> and about grief. And I'm wondering if that will resonate in the same way, because I certainly don't want to, you know, I feel like I've done my stuff with yeah. abortion and, and postpartum and I don't need to necessarily tackle that again. Um, but, but we'll see. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Although I think ultimately what you write about is what you're writing about in this is that women just get on with things. And sometimes yeah. that is to the detriment of themselves. I mean, there's a lovely scene in this where not to give too much away, but somebody shouts, why will no one go to the doctor in this house? And I think there's that that idea that uh, that 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 theme is it's not yeah. necessarily it doesn't have to be about abortion or po like you say postnatal depression it's it's just about women women tend to give a lot to other people and not so much to themselves that's right the nuances of that experience and i think that'll always be baked into what i write because that's the perspective that i'm coming from yeah. that's the way that i you know that's the lens that i have for how i see the world so hopefully you're right that that that'll always be part of, I think I'll always be writing feminist films. Yeah. I can't imagine ever, ever writing one that doesn't have that kind of perspective on it. Yeah. I mean, I hope one day that people will be able to stop writing particular, no, not stop writing feminist films, but the fact that something is feminist will stop being the point that people make about it first. And it'd be, That's right. it'd yeah. be about other things before, before everyone says, oh, it's a feminist film. 
Um, I completely agree. I hope it's just the new normal. Thank you so much for your time, Kelly. This has been really, really interesting. I would advise that everyone go and see St. Francis in a safe and socially distanced fashion, obviously, (laughs) if they can. And I look forward to whatever it is you've got coming next. I know it's difficult to say what's next at the moment because... I mean, it's lunch, isn't it? What's next? We don't know. We don't know what's going on much before then. Yeah, I hope we get to make another movie at some point in the not too distant future. We'll see. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster did we watch this week? This week we watched Deep Water Horizon, a relatively new film based on the real life Deep Water Horizon disaster, explosion, massive environmental leak that happened in 2010, which is the worst environmental disaster, I think, in American history. And... 11 men died so not great on any front directed by peter berg and starring mark Wahlberg, kurt russell his stepdaughter kate hudson although they're only in the scene together i think for about 20 seconds oh she gives him a um, hug right at the end yeah and lots of other people who people may or may not know ethan supley john malkovich of course i'm sorry yes (laughs) Yes, Uh, and also John Malkovich. (laughs) This film reminds me a lot. For a second, I had to pause it and thought, who directed this? Because it reminded me a lot of Paul Greengrass stuff. Paul Greengrass is the absolute master of this sort of thing. He directed United 93, about the plane that was brought down on September the 11th by the passengers on it. He did Captain Phillips, which is the Tom Hanks thing about the hijacking by Somali pirates. I thought this followed... A similar style which made me think it might be Paul Greengrass in that it doesn't really explain stuff to you it just drops you in the action it literally picks up some people are flying to get on deep water horizon probably worth there pointing out that thing- that is an oil rig by the way operated by a company called Transocean but ultimately for BP we are aware that a disaster is about to happen so you watch it unfold don't think it's as good as Paul Greengrass but I think Peter Berg has done a great job of it Peter Berg, we talked about to Pat and Joseph a lot because Peter Berg directed a lot of the episodes of The Leftovers that he was in and has quite apparently sort of laid back style of directing in as much as he just left Pat and Joseph in a room with about 20 minutes until he felt so uncomfortable that he went, yeah, that's the level of discomfort I need you to feel cut. It reminded me in parts of Chernobyl in the sense of, don't press that button. (laughs) Literally, you can see a disaster unfolding in front of you. And again, you don't really understand. In Chernobyl, you do understand by the end what's gone wrong, but you don't need to know what has gone wrong? You just need to know that something has got wrong. Gone yeah, wrong and I'd say end the re- really bad. The reverse of that as well. There's, there's, don't press that button, and then at a point, there's a ignore him. Press the button. Press the button. Ignore the yeah, person in charge. Absolutely. I mean, there are certain things that you just think that is utter madness. Like right at the start when they have a handover with some safety crew that's done within earshot of helicopters, <laughs> basically right next to them. <laughs> And you're like, oh my God, that is so ridiculous. And then at the end, they all go, I don't know what the fuck he just said. And then you think, well, in any other universe, it'd be ridiculous. But then it starts to pile up to, well, you can see why this happened, if that's the sort of thing that did actually happen. I mean, if you're interested, I I had a little look to see what was actually real and what wasn't real. 
And as these films go, you might have done this, as these films go, apparently this is pretty accurate. For example, the safety award that they receive on the day that it blows up, in the same way that they were conducting a safety test in Chernobyl and that's what caused it to explode. It seems so on the nose that I thought, I bet that actually has to be true because it's so stupid. Why would you put that in if it wasn't true? It is true. When they arrived, the BP guys also bought a safety award for Deepwater Horizon. Literally on the day it blew up. I thought Mark Wahlberg was probably the right man for the job. First half, he just wanders around just dishing out bonhomie. His character, Mike Williams' <laughs> job just seems to be to go along and just go, guys, hi guys, you guys, how's the car going? How are the kids? Brilliant. But the fact that he had that personality at the start kind of makes his transition to the hero of it quite believable Mm -hmm. he is actually a real guy it was you get to see and hear him testifying john malkovich is the pantomimic villain who has again (laughs) an accent that is so mad that that has to be spot on that has to be an impersonation it's so louisiana i thought malkovich was good apparently again bp were sort of the villains in the of the piece that is correct but also, apparently, I read an article in the New York Times that said everything that does happen on this did happen, pretty much. But there's a lot of stuff that did happen that they didn't put in it, which would perhaps have made it a little less biased against BP and more biased against everybody that was on there making a catalogue of mistakes Apparently, as they went along. BP were, like, proportioned 67% of the blame in the trial. Yeah. Which doesn't account for a decent third there, which was apparently American companies got some stick too, but that isn't in this American film, interestingly. No, exactly. Yeah. I thought Kate Hudson put in a really nuanced performance. I would say this is the best I've seen Kate Hudson since she was in Almost Famous, which is literally the first thing she made. Kurt Russell, his character, who's called Mr. Jimmy, which again gives it this kind of odd southern, almost his, like it feels like it was a piece of history, but not from 2010, but from ages ago. What happens to his character is actually my genuine life fear, which is that not only would a disaster happen to me, it will happen to me when I'm naked. <laughs> <laughs> because he is actually in the shower when the explosions go off, and that's always been my fear. Like, oh my God, can you imagine if there's a house fire and I had to be taken out by the fire brigade naked? It's since that, that plant pot hit you in your dad's bath. <laughs> absolutely (laughs) anyway i thought the explosions were really effective i actually thought it was a really good film it was genuinely tense in parts and like i say the bits that i thought maybe were a bit heroic and over egged apparently is true apparently he did have to jump off the side of the rig at the end wow the last man off the rig actually jumped into the burning water as that film suggests so it kind of reminded um, me of titanic as it escalated obviously a fiery a much fierier Titanic because a lot of things were on fire. I'm, I'm sure Lucy was cleaning up on her bingo board there. But yeah, just those bits where people were just having to hurl themselves or running up stuff that was exploding. It reminded me very much of the second half of Titanic when the boat splits. Uh, but yeah. I did think, and this is me being a bit dim, but I did go, yeah, but this was true. And I was like, oh no, Titanic was true too. It's just that James Cameron ruined <laughs> it for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What did you guys think of it? Uh, well, do you know what? First of all, there needs to be a bit of a disclaimer. So at the end of last, uh, our kind of last Dunleavy Does Disaster, when you said Deepwater Horizon, 
I got very mixed up and I said, oh, that's the one with sharks in, isn't it? No, no, it isn't. Uh, that was Deep Blue Sea. So I was expecting sharks, didn't get it. But I enjoyed it much more than I expected for something that was going to be set on an oil rig. And like you say, I, I didn't understand any of it. I was just thinking, well, that looks bad. Whenever they went under the ground and showed a bubble yeah. coming up, I thought, well, I think that shouldn't be happening. <laughs> yeah. um, Whenever a gauge went into the red, I was like, yeah. I don't know what oh, they're measuring, but it's fucked. I know that that's bad. So, yeah, and I did. I really enjoyed it more than I, I, I thought. I, I enjoyed the dialogue between Mark Wahlberg's characters and the people that he worked with. It felt very realistic, Whereas normally when you watch these things, it has like wise cracking guys and you think that's that's not the, the way that people speak to each other. But like the, the bit where they're in the like an office thing and he's talking about how BP are bastards and they do it all for the money. And then they break into one of my favourite funk songs, 1973's For the Love of Money. And they all start going, <laughs> money, 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 money. And that is... <laughs> That is exactly what happens when you've been working with people for so long that you yeah. just start singing random songs. Doesn't it, Mick? Money, 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 money. money. She never stops singing. It's like working in a fucking musical. <laughs> yeah. I also, I, I, I have to say, I loved Malkovich's accent. There was a, a bit where I thought he'd started just speaking in haikus. He went, no, yeah. no mud, no flow, we've got to go. And then he said, you're nervous as Kate's. And I just thought, he's the, he's, he very much reminded me of, you know, Kenneth Branagh in Wild Wild West. Not one of his best performances. Wicky Wild Wild, sorry. Yeah, exactly. He plays that, that mm. kind of doctor in the steampunk wheelchair. Very similar to that. Um, but the Cajun accent is a bit mad. It is, but yeah. Malkovich chews, chews it up and swallows it with a plum, and it was great. But it, it sounds like the sort of accent, where, and this is, this is an interesting sort of point about accents, isn't it, that you associate with a level of stupidity. It sounds like yeah. someone who has, has, lives in the back countries. I love the special effects. I think it won an Oscar in 2017 for special effects and sound editing. I really enjoyed it it was just a, a kind of quite an understated performance by Wahlberg even though he was the the hero he's very much the everyman but likable as well mm. um and I think that's what kind of made you go well I can kind of see even at the end even though he is the hero it's not as if he's saved the whole day it's just he gets out and goes with the character of Andrea as well and I think he in real life said to her if you don't jump I'm gonna throw you and saved her life as well as jumping. I think it's a little bit murky around whether he jumped first or she didn't, but I, I, I like the fact that it wasn't really, you know, kind of Mark Wahlberg, this kind of action character. I think it was it was quite good, good casting, really. I think you're absolutely right, because there's a point in this that, like when I was saying about Paul Greengrass, there's a bit in this. Have you ever seen Captain Phillips? No. No. It's really good. But when I watched it, everyone was going about how great Tom Hanks was in it. And I was thinking, this is really, really average Tom Hanks performance, to be honest, until about the last five minutes when he actually finally gets off the boat. He's sitting on a, like a little doctor's bed thing and he absolutely just loses his shit. And he's just like, fuck. And he's shake, shaking uncontrollably because everything that he's been repressing for like a week has just like erupts out of him. And I think that there was a touch of that only a touch, because obviously Donnie 
not Donnie, obviously Mark Wahlberg isn't Tom Hanks. When he goes off and he just sits on those steps by himself and he just looks absolutely fucking shell-shocked at what's just happened to him in the last few hours. And I think, you know, that's why, because Mickey and I were just talking off Mike a bit about how we're not going to do very well in bingo because I don't think real life disasters ever play out like film, like they do in sort of cinemas because... At the end of disasters, people just hug and look into the distance, hopefully, don't they? And you're like, that's not what would happen. People would absolutely have mass on panic attacks as soon as they were out of that. These people would be suffering from PTSD for the rest of their lives, some of them, for for what they experienced at that point. Did you like it, Mick? I did like it. It was very intense. I think what Lucy said about it being really naturalistic is is key to why it works because the drama is the drama rather than them amping it up with any sort of yeah. Hollywood bells and whistles. It it speaks for itself. And I actually thought, given how little time there is to meet all the characters, to meet all the people, every time one of them died, I felt it. I think they, I think they did really well at sketching out people that you cared about in a very short space of time. And obviously revisiting that with the list of names of the 11 men that died at the end. I thought they did it really well without it being schmaltzy or sentimental, but with a real feeling for people died. And actually one of the saddest bits for me, when the bird flies in and is just covered in oil. And it's just like, that's what the future was for months and months and months for the wildlife. Yeah. And they don't have to egg it more than that. So yeah, I think it was really restrained, but also explosion heavy terrifying because it was real so yeah i liked it i thought it was good as well when they do that roll call when they basically essentially take on register yeah the fact that when all those names came up at the end you saw that loads of them loads of the people that died had a name between a to c oh so the first one missing the first yeah a lot of them which means they would have been first in the register when they were calling it so that is actually do you know what i mean it didn't feel egged in that sense it was like yeah that would have happened yeah pretty early on they would have realized that loads of people were fucking missing because of where their names fell in the register it's almost obviously it's horrible that 11 men died but it's incredible that only 11 men died given the scale of that fucker from what happened Mm. yeah 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 it did it felt very chernobyl-esque like you said hannah I i was watching it and thinking especially the the beginning this is very similar and I think that's why I liked it because I properly you know you believed in this and I think at the end where you see the the actual pictures of the people that was the bit that got me really tearful because you kind of you've you've seen what's happened and then you think bloody hell like they went through that so yeah it was much better than than I thought it was going to be really good film I bet there were sharks as well though like just really deep down in the water there is a fun story though apparently and i don't know how this is true but it is true apparently a group of students took a boat out and went fishing underneath deep water horizon on that day beneath the rig all of that stuff going on must agitate a lot of like wildlife that yes they'd heard a noise and and apparently this is absolutely true and it's why there are photographs of deep water horizon and why there's a video of it you can watch it and they pulled their boat away to a safe distance and then recorded it as it happened. Wow. So there is footage of deep water horizon coming down. What a day to pick to go and do that. Jesus. Yeah. 
I'm glad they weren't using Mark Wahlberg's, well, Mike Williams' uh, method of fishing, which is just to put a glove on and hope that a catfish bites you and then just yank it out. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I just uh, like, this man is a, is a hard bastard. That's what we're being told there. He's a hard bastard, but with tactics. Hey, that's noodling. Noodling for catfish, that's what it's called. Is that what it? it's called? I, I watch a lot of programmes about fishing. I'm not even ashamed <laughs> um, to say it. I love it. And yeah, that you noodle for catfish, put your hands in a hole and just wait for a bite. Who doesn't do that? <laughs> I used to really like those crazy programmes about people who had like six days to do a year's worth of fishing. Oh, uh, they were yeah. always called Deadliest things like the catch. deadliest catch and stuff oh, like brilliant. that. Yeah, Where people would be like, oh yeah, I think, I think I'll probably lose that finger. And they like, what the fuck? You just carried on doing what you're doing. It's, it's unbelievably oh my dangerous. God, I sense a Dunleavian of... Reynolds spin-off. Oh, <laughs> Big Lobster uh, Hunters is is honestly one of the best shows to watch. It's I, I know, the, there's a lot of things you don't know about me, Mickey, and number one is that I love Big Fish programmes. Okay, so, noted. Uh, yeah, exactly. So if the next film could be related to that, fantastic. Should we go to the list? I've got three. I think I've only got two, unless we count the um, sa- the safety award at the same time as checking the kill line. Then I've got three, but not many. Hark at Lucy getting the correct terminology in. <laughs> okay, I have one, two, three, potentially four. Okay. Let's hear it, Noonan. What you got? Incredibly for this film, it has ticked a box that seldom gets ticked, and that is pre-disaster shag. Very rarely. I don't oh, even yeah. think since the towering inferno I've been able to tick that box. Or maybe Avalanche, because everyone was at it. Anyway, pre-disaster shag, <laughs> uh, Mike Williams and his missus, Mrs. Kate Hudson, they went at it. And then Dan Bosses, clearly. BP, what were you thinking? Money, that's what they were thinking. And finally, hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? John Markovich in Conair. Correct. Lucy? I've got events too important to cancel, safety check while the kill line's being tested, bad idea. Can you smell burning? Obviously. (laughs) Everything is on fire. Yeah, and Brexit analogy. So go with me. If we see the rig as a platform, it's a political platform. Arrogant (laughs) decision made by powerful hungry white men blows up in their face i mean good work yeah i love it yep. yeah thank you thank you so i've got old faithful thing you can't do meaning you would definitely die in this film well i'm not sure because i don't think i could have jumped off that rig but i suppose he would have thrown me off then wouldn't he yeah yeah so maybe i should cross that one off okay is it, uh, is it have a shower have... in the nude because you're a never nude <laughs> Fucking hell. Can you imagine having to do that with your bits hanging out? No. If only we hadn't bought substandard kit. Well, to be honest, I think that's kind of part of what the entire investigation unleashed. So I'm going to have that. Cassandra ignored. I mean, there are several people in this who say, come on now, do the test properly. And they don't. And finally, local radio or TV reports, which Kate Hudson is watching at home. So that gives me three. So I'm on the same with Lucy. We didn't find out where they went to the toilet. Maybe you could have four. I mean, in the sea, I'm guessing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's a tie. Or just in there, to be honest, in their trousers with that going on. Yeah, that that's going to happen. Yeah. It's inevitable. <laughs> Lucy, you got a listener request, didn't you? I do. So we had Hayley Corney 
Mother of Gremlins 1985 contacts us on Instagram and she suggested Left Behind. Now, Hannah, I need to break it to you. It's got Nicolas Cage in it. <laughs> Are you all, I mean... Again? Uh, uh, why not? Why again. not? It Can we could... not just watch Con Air again? No, no. I think because somebody, Hayley went to the effort to get in touch, I think we should honour that. And more Nicolas Cage and disaster. I mean, I will honour that, but I'm not going to guarantee that I'm going to enjoy it. It might be kindergarten cop all over again. That's Do you know what, Harry? You don't need to enjoy it. You just The fact that you're willing to watch it is enough. Standard issue for all women.